Welcome to Hollowed Ground Storycast. I'm Alan. And I'm Anya, and this episode is about the first movie that made me appreciate film as art rather than entertainment, Monsoon Wedding. There's just so many ceremonies, and I don't even know who's who half the time. Which is like a real thing in this movie that we were just talking about. (laughs) Although... To be clear, this is a quote from the groom talking to the bride. So I feel like if they can't keep everyone straight, then we, the audience, should, like, (laughs) cut us some slack. (laughs) (laughs) Right, so Monsoon Wedding is a 2001 film in English and Hindi that follows a Punjabi family in Delhi brought together by a daughter's wedding. Aditi is engaged to marry Hemant, a man she hasn't met, and is struggling to say goodbye to her married ex-boyfriend Vikram. Four days before the wedding, her extended family begins to arrive, including many of her cousins and Tej, her uncle by marriage, who helped their family get re-established financially after they lost everything during the partition of India and Pakistan. At the engagement ceremony the night before the wedding, Aditi's cousin Rhea notices that Tej has been sexually abusing their 10-year-old cousin Aliyah. Rhea discloses that Tej did the same thing to her many years ago and flees before Aditi's father Lalit can respond. The next day at the wedding, Tej and his wife show up and Lalit demands that they leave, surprising Rhea and much of the rest of the family. The wedding is a great success, despite the torrential monsoon rains, thanks to the excellent waterproofing provided by wedding planner Doobie. That same night, Doobie marries the family's maid, Alice, who has been showing interest in him since he arrived to set up Aditi's wedding. Um, and writing this this summary was actually really difficult, because um, I think it makes it sound like the movie's really only about one thing, and it's completely not. I chose to mm, highlight yeah. this one specific plot because it's the one that's most tied into the climax at the end of the movie, but... There's, like, so much more going on. It's really much more of, like, an ensemble cast, and and everyone kind of has their own plot line. Monsoon Wedding was directed by Miranair and written by Sabrina Dewan. Miranair's other best-known films are Mississippi Masala, Kama Sutra, A Tale of Love, The Namesake, and Salam Bombay. The film was internationally co-produced by companies... Uh, in India, the U.S., Italy, France, and Germany. Uh, It cost $14 million to make and grossed over $30 million internationally. It won the Gold Lion Award at the Venice Film Festival, as well as the British Independent Film Festival for Best Foreign Language Film, and the Audience Award at the Canberra Film Festival. Uh, And it was nominated for a Golden Globe. Wow. Like, if you would have asked me, I would have said, oh, that probably won an Oscar or something. So, like, I'm shocked that it's just, like, a a kind of nominee. It's I feel like this is a well-known thing. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I somehow managed to get my hands on it in, like, 2002. So, and I wasn't, like, that into independent films at the time so like I actually was trying to figure out like how I first watched this I must have gotten it from Blockbuster like I don't know how else I would have acquired it (laughs) wow right (laughs) yeah so when I first watched this movie I kind of said this in our first introduction but I feel like this was one of the first movies that I've watched that was really you know kind of like a bit slower paced not really plot driven, more character driven. It's a movie where a lot happens, but also like really nothing happens. Mm -hmm. And you know, it's a huge cast and each character gets like a small arc for the most part. And so this was just like a completely different approach to movie making than anything that I had ever seen before. Um, And it completely blew my mind at the time. Mm -hmm. And there's also just like a ton of visual storytelling um, and not a lot of reliance on dialogue. The dialogue that is here is like very natural. It's not super snappy. It doesn't really feel written. Yeah. I guess the other thing that I really remember from watching this for the first time is just, I was so surprised by the sexual assault reveal. And I think if you Mm -hmm. watch carefully, you can totally see that it's telegraphed from the very beginning, that there's something going oh, yeah. on between Rhea and Tej. But I think 
you know, I just wasn't a careful movie watcher at that time, and that kind of sexual abuse wasn't really on my radar at all. I mean, I knew that something was going on with Tej and Aaliyah that wasn't, you know, wholesome. <laughs> um, but I mm -hmm. think I, I missed the fact that Rhea herself had also um, had that same thing happen to her. Um, and I remember, you know, as soon as I finished the movie, I went back and wanted to rewatch it to go look for those clues and then see them the second time through. Yeah, it's they're definitely there. It reminded me, this is a weird comparison. It reminded me of another movie called um, Donnie Darko. The, like the very first time I was like, whoa, is Patrick Swayze like a predator? <laughs> and uh, yes, he is in that yeah. movie. Um, and it was the same thing here. I was like, the way that she reacted to him with the child, I was like, oh, that dude is uh, a scumbag. But I was really surprised because this movie, like that whole plot line is surprising, right? It it does. It's not like romantic in any way, right? It's like a family trouble kind mm -hmm. of a thing. And so I was surprised that anything was like that in here. And I felt like it was the most powerful storyline emotionally. Oh, yeah, definitely. And I think that that's one of the reasons why I pulled it out for the summary. And I think also to, I mean, we didn't explicitly give a trigger warning or a content warning. Uh, but like, obviously, we're going to be oh, talking true. about sexual abuse uh, in this episode. And so I wanted to make sure that people knew upfront what they were getting into. When you watch the movie, especially knowing how it ends, like that thread is woven throughout the movie, but also like the movie is about so much more than just that. Yeah. You know, it's, it's central. It's the most important. It's the most emotionally resonant storyline, but it also in some ways doesn't really define the movie. Yeah, no, that's really well put. I totally agree. So going into this, I hadn't seen it before and I watched it for the show. And so my guess would have been, that this is a movie about the bride. And I feel like coming out of it, the main character is the father of the bride, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. That's yeah. how it felt to me, if I had to pick one character. Yeah, he's certainly the most involved in all of the different threads that are going on. You know, because like right. he's the main person who actually interacts with Doobie and Alice, who get their own storyline, right? Um, mm -hmm. and he's involved with Rhea, he's involved with Aditi, he's involved with, uh, you know, like his wife and the son Varun. Who all have like their own thing going on, but they like key off of him, right? Yeah. It's interesting because I guess the two big themes in the movie, I think, are, are family and the old India versus new India. And mm. those two things actually go together really well. Like, in some ways, this movie feels very modern and progressive. But also, like you say, it kind of revolves around this patriarch in a somewhat traditional way. Yeah. Right? Where it's like, ultimately, it is kind of like this man trying to hold his family together and, like, protect his family. Yeah, and it feels like there's different classes of people who are kind of locked into those positions. People like Doobie, who is successfully running a business, but feels lower class to me. Yeah, he's definitely like a working class entrepreneur as yeah. opposed to like a educated class business person. Yeah, and it, but it feels like you were saying, you know, there is this economic collapse and it feels like the father is like middle class, uh, but is like lost out in a recession type of a situation. It feels like he can't get back to where he was. The scumbag uncle is like untouchably rich. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Like, you know, old India is so stratified in a way that is very locked in, in terms of like its caste system, you know, like you're born into your class and then you stay there and you marry there. And this movie does that. Like the the way that people couple up is within their economic class. Like it kind of reinforces that. And actually, I think you're right that I should have actually brought up three themes instead of two themes because the other theme that features so prominently here is class and classism. It has a very like upstairs, downstairs 
Downton Abbey kind of feel, which I guess, you know, it's hard to know how much this was actually influenced by that. Like, as an American, that's sort of my main reference. You know, just in terms of English language media, like, classism in England, English culture is, like, much more formalized and regimented in that kind of way than it is in America. In some ways, it's like, maybe we're not the best people to be talking about this movie, because, like, we don't have a lot of context in terms of Indian cinema and Indian culture, but this is a movie that I think works really well even without all of that. So I guess, you know, we're kind of talking about it just from how it comes across to the outside perspective. Yeah, and I assume it's all authentic because, like you said, it's written and directed by women within the culture. Yeah, and And that was actually something that we talked about a little off mic before we started recording was as I was writing this up, it suddenly occurred to me that I think almost every movie that I've picked for the show so far has been written and directed by women. Yeah, yeah. Which is like <laughs> spectacular considering how few movies are actually written and directed by women in general. <laughs> right. And so like, I I need to think more about that. And like, is there like a certain female or like feminine approach to filmmaking that I'm like very specifically attracted to. Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, or it was like, you know, with the indie movie revolution, opening things up a little bit more for different voices 20 years ago, you know, it just became like more available maybe at the right time for you or... Yeah. It's definitely easier to pick stuff written by men or written and directed by men, (laughs) you know, like... I, I feel guilty that a lot of my picks have been that, uh, you know, but I did do Octavia Butler. I read more women than I watch, probably. And I think it is easier, right? Because the, it's just, <laughs> this is going to sound super shitty to authors, but it's easier to write a book than to make a movie. Um, just, oh, I think that's totally true. Just yeah. from a, like, logistical perspective, right? Like, writing is yeah. fucking hard. I write a lot for my job. Um, I know how hard it is. But ultimately, the only thing stopping you from writing is you. You know? Mm -hmm. Whereas making a movie, you need a lot more money and you need a lot... You know, it requires, like, a whole team of technically skilled people to pull that off. So it makes sense that, you know, underrepresented minorities, um, both in terms of race and gender, would break into books and writing more easily than something like film where it's you know the financers are controlled by mostly white men yeah and the audience is like perceived to be white culture so we have to like appease white culture so who do we go to for that we go to white people so yeah it's like the there's less appreciation of like niche audiences It'd be like, oh, you're gay, so you want to make a gay movie. It'd be like, I just want to make a movie, you know. <laughs> and like, and this movie feels incredibly Indian, but not in like a. I feel like if Western people did make this, it would be Indian in like a cartoonish way, or like a, you know what I mean? Like it would be a caricature of it. But this felt like very contemporary of the moment, where where like the father. I love the way the movie opens, where the father is like freaking out. And he's, you know, he's calling Doobie and he's like, where are you? What is going on? And he's like standing in the middle of like a bunch of sculptures or something. He's like, I'm stuck in traffic right this moment. And I was like, oh, I, I understand who these people are immediately, even though I don't really know much about Indian culture because it's like so authentically presented. The storytelling is like happening on multiple levels. It's not just people saying things, telling you what's going on. It's like all the context. Yeah. I think the movie does do a beautiful job of just putting the audience so specifically in a time and place. You know, it communicates everything about the setting just really effortlessly. I mean, it feels effortlessly. I'm sure a lot of effort went into it. Um, (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. One of my favorite scenes speaking to that, that like setting and sense of place happens at the very beginning when Aditi goes to visit 
her ex-boyfriend on the set of the television show where he works and it's like a talk Mm. show and they're debating just because India has gone global does this mean we should embrace everything what about our ancient culture our tradition our values like this is in America this is India um Mm. you think you represent the common man you don't and then and then they bring in a female dubist and like show her dubbing over a sex scene and this is meant to like shock the audience um Mm -hmm. it really shows like a lot of the tension going on between like old and new like india versus global you know this (laughs) this movie has a lot to say about sex in a lot of different contexts um and i think Mm. it actually it addresses the idea of women as sexual agents and like being slutty or being slut shamed with a really deft touch, especially Mm. for 2001, you know, Mm -hmm. I really don't get the feeling that the movie is judging Aditi for the choices that she makes. That whole thing is really interesting now that you bring it up because like, and I don't know what degree this aspect of the movie is like literal or not but that entire scene that you're talking about is all in english where they are saying things like this is india this is like i don't remember that being subtitled Mm -mm. most of it's not so the one kind of like more traditional woman does speak a little bit in hindi but then the guy Mm -hmm. calls her out on it he's like you just think you think just because you speak in hindi that you represent the common man you know, well, you right. don't. Yeah. And, and the host that she's in love with is like in a Western three-piece suit, you know? Mm-hmm. And then the woman who's doing the dubbing is like in kind of more traditional clothes and, you know, looks down at the floor the whole time, but then, you know, does this very like explicitly sexual thing. It's, it's, yeah, it's all mixed up with the old and the new and the West and, uh, the identity of India and stuff like that. And uh, yeah. And, you know, going back to that scumbag uncle, he lives in America. Right. And there's this whole thing looming in her future about America. So that's like an important idea in the movie too. Yeah. And Hemant, the groom also lives in America. Right. And, And so Aditi's going to move to America after the wedding. Right. Yeah. I think Aditi's relationships really, marry that like complicated relationship between new and old too because in some ways she's going from like a new india to an old india type of thing right like she was having an affair with her married co-worker which is like a very modern at least (laughs) in the way it's perceived thing to do and she's you know going from that to an arranged marriage which is like you know very old school traditional Mm-hmm. but also in the way that her relationship with him develops, it's like feels in some ways very modern and progressive, right? Like it's built yeah. on honesty and, and like him really respecting her agency and, mm-hmm. and taking, you know, responsibility for his emotional reactions um, in a way that is like, you know, super progressive and, like, not representing traditional, like, toxic masculinity. Yeah, explain what you mean in terms of the plot. Okay, yeah. So, basically, um, the plot line with Aditi is that she meets up with Vikram at one point. He asks her why she comes and she says, I wanted to be reminded why I broke up with you. Somehow, I can't remember. And, like, make out (laughs) in his car. And then (laughs) they get, uh, like, stopped by the police or, like, the police see the car pulled over on the side of the road and like start harassing them basically. And then she actually steals his car to get away. He's married, they're in love, but he's ref- he doesn't want to leave his wife for her. So she's like, okay, I need to do something else. She gets this arranged marriage set up, but she goes to see Vikram one last time. Um, and then she feels really guilty about it. So she tells Hemant what happened. When she first tells him, Hemant is really upset. Um, and he kind of yells at her. It's not like a totally over the top. Um, it felt like, a, very real. Yeah. It doesn't feel yeah. abusive. It's just like, right. Wow. Right. My betrothed soon to be wife just like had a sexual experience with someone else. And it's like out of the blue. 
Um, but he follows up. Um, he says, I'm sorry I lost it out there. I didn't have any right to talk to you like that. You had every reason to be angry at me. Someone broke my heart a few years ago, too. I know how hard and confusing it can be. I really appreciate you telling me about Vikram. You didn't have to, but you did. That honesty means a lot to me. I know it's a risk, but what marriage isn't a risk? Whether our parents introduce us or we meet in a club, what difference does it make? I know we can put this behind us. I really do. I believe this can work. I believe we can be happy. As for the answer of whether or not we should get married, it's really for you to answer. You know, so he's yeah. like, he's really like taking responsibility for what he did. He's empathizing with her and like yeah. putting himself in her position, giving her the agency to decide what happens or not. And and again, he's like drawing that contrast between, you know, old and new. Especially when you compare him to the other men in the family, especially like the father who everything is revolving around and the uncle because the father is like in everybody's business and wants everybody to act a certain way. Mm -hmm. And then the uncle is like covertly manipulating everyone, right? And he, Haman is is very like hands off in a way. He's the other end of the spectrum, really. Mm -hmm. I feel like Aditi's story is really like at the beginning, she just assumes that if it's an arranged marriage, it will be like loveless and have no passion and it's a huge gamble for her in terms of like, am I just going to be stuck in something that I hate? You know, like the answer to that whole situation is this guy is a really good guy. He's she's attracted to him and it's all like it's going to be OK. Yeah, it's going to be OK in terms of like she can have the kind of life that she wants to have and like be herself. She doesn't have to change in, in any way. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know. To a certain extent, she's been not even really able to be herself with Vikram. Like, in some ways she is, but also, like, she's not his mm. wife. And right. he answers to his wife before he answers to her. So so this is actually, like, more freeing for her. Mm -hmm. And to be clear, Vikram is, like, the show host. Like, the show is his show. He's very powerful at mm -hmm. her job. And so, like, it's natural, like, it totally makes sense for me at her age to be attracted to this person. But, like, I look at that whole thing with side eye in terms of him. Like, you oh, say they're yeah. in love with each other, but I don't feel like she's in love with him. And that makes sense to me. But he is, like, taking advantage, I think. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I guess I didn't really explain that very well. We get very little from Vikram's point of view. And, like, yeah. very little insight into him. But what we do get, he looks like a slimy douchebag. And, like, mm -hmm. I don't know if all the grease in his hair is supposed to be a metaphor or something, <laughs> but I took it that way. <laughs> yeah. I Yeah, he seems like the typical midlife crisis. A, a woman who I should be mentoring, but instead have, like, taken advantage of. Yeah. Oh, I love the moment where she just like steals his car and it's like, how does he get it back? I don't know. I don't even really care, actually. <laughs> it's a pretty good moment. <laughs> yeah. So I guess the other main storyline in the the core family that we haven't really talked about at all is um, the little brother Varun. Like he's clearly queer in some way. Mm -hmm. Um and it's like, it's not clear. I mean, he's pretty young. He's maybe like 12 or something. He's like Bobby Hill. You know what I mean? That's I haven't what I kept watched thinking. enough King of the Hill. <laughs> <laughs> he's just like, he's just like very into theater and dance. And yeah, there's, there's a femininity about him that makes his father very upset. Yeah. And so the dad wants to send him to boarding school to try and, like, enforce some masculinity mm -hmm. on him. And the mom is much more of, like, embracing him for who he is and encouraging what makes him happy. And so I that storyline doesn't even really get resolved, but I think it's interesting that they put that in there. You know, when I think about the way that this movie views family and it's like you get the good, the bad, and the ugly, I think... This is kind of like the bad in a way where it's like, this is the one part where I feel like Lolly really misses the mark, you know, mm -hmm. 
um, and kind of fails his family. Yeah, I appreciated the way that that was framed, like as a father who uh, has made a lot of mistakes with my kids, because like there's two stages to the particular thing. Like it starts out with him and his wife having a conversation about the boy and then the boy comes in. I felt like, well, he was, he has a lot of anxiety and I don't feel like it's particularly wrapped up in needing his son to be any particular way. It's that he feels like this is going to make his life harder. I um, see. And, and like mess it up. And he's all, I think he's also aware that like, that's not, good that he should be more like his wife but he's already so stressed out about all the other stuff that's happening and that he's like doesn't have much rope to play with here when his son comes in like emotionally he just goes too far he just lets his anxiety push him into anger and push his son away and like try to contain him in a way that is totally inappropriate and when his son leaves I feel like the way the performance is handled that he feels like he failed. He's not like, no, I was right. And he yeah. was wrong and you're wrong. He's like, I fucked this up. Yeah, he definitely knows that he fucked up and like has regret. And so I guess we're left with the hope that like maybe he'll do better, you know, when the movie ends and we leave this family, you know, like hopefully he can do better next time. And support his son better, yeah. I feel like it's a stepping stone in the other story of sexual abuse, where he is learning to, like, I fucked it up with him, and I have to work on that, but he's still here. But, you know, like, for my niece, who is kind of my daughter, I need to, like, step up. I need to do it right this time. I see. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, it really is. It's like... A little baby practice of like, yeah. am I supporting the people who I need to be supporting? Actually, no. <laughs> and so mm -hmm. like, how can I do this better next time? I really like that about him. I think it's like a tightrope to write and direct that kind of thing. And the performance of it is nuanced. Like it is, I totally agree. It's bad. You know, that's not how you should treat your kids. And like, it's a bad thing that he did. But I think the movie is like, this is a bad thing that he is doing, you know? Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, okay, so maybe we should jump back into the sexual abuse storyline, because we kind of, like, started out talking about how it's the, the most important, but then we jumped into all of the other discussion. Um, so like you said, Rhea, she's a niece, but she's actually, like, more of a daughter because her parents both died... Aditi's parents kind of like took her in so she's genetically or technically or whatever a niece but like really much more like a daughter in the beginning of the movie Tej offers to pay for Rhea's education in America because she wants to um like go get an MFA and uh work on her writing in the U.S. um and Tej offers to pay for all of that which is incredible because we know that Lalit's family is under quite a bit of financial stress and, like, they wouldn't be able to afford that for her otherwise. It's, like, such a accurate illustration of how predators protect themselves mm -hmm. by yeah. being generous and mm -hmm. by um, making themselves, like, pillars of the community and being helpful and, like, getting people indebted to them in whatever ways they can so that mm -hmm. they can use that for protection if they get caught. You can see at the end when he gets confronted, like, he thinks that he's safe, right? He thinks that the fact that he's supported this family financially for so long means that there's no way that they would ever, like, get him to leave. Mm -hmm. But, you know, when it comes to the moment, Lali does what he has to to protect his family. And you can see on her face just, like, how surprised Rhea is. Mm -hmm. that Lali chooses her you know like <laughs> it's interesting watching this movie in 2019 and knowing that it was made in 2001 because it's just like it touches on so many aspects of you know what we call like me too era and like me too issues and it was so 
long ago and I think so really forward thinking in the way that it understood these dynamics. Yeah, the the performance of the uncle when he's called out and then also when he's kicked out were both like perfect. I think it's hard to be the actor doing that. You know, like you you want to say like I hate that guy, but I really respect the performance of it, like the way that he the disbelief that is also laughter, like, <laughs> come on, guys, what do you, what yeah. you talk That kind of thing is like, oh, man, that's 100% that guy, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and his wife, too, like, yeah, yeah. just being like, she's almost like stone-faced. Because it hasn't been two of them, right? It's not just two. Oh, it's absolutely It's not just these not. two. There's she, no way she, she knows. doesn't know. Yeah. Yeah. It's there's two steps, right? There's like there's being believed, which is its own huge hurdle. And then there's like people mm. standing up for you given that mm-hmm. they believe you, right? And Rhea, I think, is understandably skeptical at both steps, right? Like she doesn't think yeah. that people are gonna believe her. Even when she knows that people believe her, she doesn't think that that will be enough to remove Tej from the family, right? Like, she speaks up mm. because, not for herself, she speaks up for Aaliyah. Right. She can't let what happened to her happen to Aaliyah, so she has to say something. And, like, even if it ends up with, you know, like, her being ostracized and having to relive her trauma and be wounded all over again, like, that's worth it for her if she can prevent that from happening to Aaliyah. She's, like, very low expectations for how this is going to play out. I love that it's an example where people do make the right decisions, but it it feels very realistic, right? It doesn't it doesn't feel like a fantasy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it has real consequences. It's a real choice because for Lalit, th- this wedding is extremely expensive for him. He really can't afford it. Mm-hmm. He definitely can't afford all of the other stuff, like you were saying, of, of going to school and all that. And so... Like, yeah. this has real consequences. Right. And for Rhea, too, right? Like, she, in a way, she's making yeah. that decision, right? Because, like, if she mm-hmm. doesn't say anything, then she gets to go to America to pursue her degree and become a writer. But it's not worth it to watch that little girl go through the same thing. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. Yeah. And in yeah. a way, I think she knows that, right? Like, the reason why Tej is doing that is to buy her silence and her loyalty. Yeah, and it it echoes the other situation that we already talked about, you know, like in a a kind of negative photographic image kind of way of the groom and the bride where there's this potentially toxic situation. You think you know how all that's going to play out because of like typical patriarchal masculinity, but all of that is kind of like inverted and he is like very, like you said, he's very modern and thoughtful and sensitive and vulnerable and then the same thing with the father right like she thinks i know exactly like i'm gonna speak up for this girl nobody's gonna believe us everybody's gonna you know just side with the rich uncle and all of that is reversed Mm -hmm. and the more like modern quote-unquote modern so i don't know why it's modern to believe women about their abuse but i mean sadly sadly it is (laughs) Yeah, but the more modern thing happens, right? This doesn't feel like old India in, right. in these choices. Exactly. Um, yeah, and it is like, quote unquote, traditional because it is like, it's all about building family and protecting family. And and it is like a patriarch getting to make the call and getting to make the decision for how it's going to mm-hmm. be. But it is like, yeah. it's with an eye to like modern values and sexual ethics. That's, wow, that's really well put. I completely agree. Yeah, because my feeling coming out of it was that this, I wish this was less about the men. Like I, like I said, I feel like it's really about the father of the bride and kind of his arc from that old India patriarch to where everything needs to look good. You know, like on the outside, we need to be like a respectable family and propriety and all that. And then at the end... Like, hey, we're a mess, but we love each other, right? It's about yeah that kind of... Like, I don't care how we look to other people because we're together and we love each other and we're real. Mm-hmm. And, like, that's a beautiful arc. And I think that's important to, you know, portray men that way. And 
and that's great. But it's like also really surprising to me that this is written and directed by women and that it's not about the women, really. It's about that arc. No, I I don't think you're wrong. There's like lots of really great female characters in the movie who have a lot of agency and make decisions, have complex emotional arcs. But it is, I yeah, like you say, at its core, like Lalit is kind of the main character and everything goes through him. While we're talking about Lalit as the main character, I feel like we should at least mention his relationship with his wife, Pimmy, and like mm. how cute it is. Like they're so, I don't know. I just love <laughs> them together. Like, you know, it's not... It's not perfect all the time, right? Like, they argue a bit. They, you know, they kind of bicker like an old married couple because they are an old married couple. Mm -hmm. But you can tell that they really do love each other and they really are able to be vulnerable and support each other and, like, see each other as as complicated whole human beings. Yeah, they have this um, interesting bedroom situation where... <laughs> I was curious about that. I was like, I don't know, maybe it's just an Indian thing to like yeah, I... sleep in two twin beds that are separated by a bedside table. Yeah, I wondered that too. I was like, you know, that kind of makes sense if the norm is arranged marriages. Maybe it's like, or maybe, you know, maybe that's just a better way to sleep. Maybe you it's your just really hot. I don't know. And yeah. Like, you don't want to be too. literally next to another person. Right. But it, I think the framing of that makes it so much more significant when he crosses that boundary and curls up with her and he's weeping. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, that's oh, heartbreaking. Man. You know, I, I was thinking of that scene when we were talking about this, but I forgot that he's like literally weeping, which is like. Yeah. It's so good. Again, like such a modern kind of like transgressive expression of masculinity that it's right. like he loves his family so much. He feels so torn with everything that he has to do. But that crying is like a totally appropriate response to that, you know, and mm. it, it's not it's not emasculating. It's not like a bad thing. That's a moment where he's tortured by his choice. I think he knows what he has to do and he's terrified of it. And he he hurts for her having gone through that and for years not knowing that his daughter basically has lived with that for her entire life. Yeah. It's a beautiful scene. The first time that I watched this, um, you know, I, at that point, I had not had any experience personally with like sexual abuse and sexual trauma. Mm. And then, so like revisiting it now, um, you know, over 15 years later, at this point, I have like quite a bit of that under my belt. Um, <laughs> and, and so I was curious, like how it would read to me with those experiences. And weirdly, like, I don't know if it affected the way that I saw the movie like that much, right? Like I have a much stronger, like personal emotional response to topics of, of like sexual abuse and sexual trauma. I have a much more developed like political social understanding of how all of that operates but I feel like the movie does such an amazing job that I like got all of that intuitively just from watching the movie the first time even without all of that life and personal experience myself you know mm. wow that what a compliment to the movie That's I amazing. know <laughs> I know, like, I mean, it's not that it, it didn't emotionally affect me or, like, it didn't, you know, evoke, you know, some of those past responses in myself, but I just, I felt like it was already that powerful the first time I saw it when I was, like, 16. I think this could only be written and probably made by women, especially at that time, and it feels so informed by that experience, but then it, like universalizes it really well mm -hmm. to where I think anybody can understand not being believed and being, you know, abused in that way. And it is because it's so skillfully directed and it operates on those multiple levels. Like you said at the beginning, it's not just what the characters are saying. It's the way that the scenes are framed, the pain on the actress's face or on the actor and 
and the way that everybody plays their parts. It's really well-made movie. Yeah. Okay. I guess there's one question that I have that involves, I, oh, I feel bad because these are the two characters whose names I didn't bother to learn. The Australian and then the other girl cousin who he has the romance with. But um, the girl cousin and Varun were like working on the dance routine together and right. for the wedding. And then after Varun and Lalit had their blow up about sending him to boarding school and like him not being manly enough, he decides that he's not going to do the dance at the wedding. Mm-hmm. Um, and he doesn't. And like, I feel like in a lot of movies, they would have had him change his mind, right? So the 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 girl cousin, um, she goes to do the dance routine by herself, and she's she's like upset that she understands that Varun, why Varun doesn't want to do it, and she's not going to try and force him. But she also like doesn't really want to do the dance by herself. She tries to get the Australian to do it. He doesn't want to. Yeah, I feel like in a lot of movies they would have had Varun like get over his hurt and go and do the dance routine. And in this movie, he doesn't. Mm-hmm. I was curious, like, if you had any thoughts on that. Oh, yeah. I mean, that felt that felt like a really good choice to me. I, re- I remember thinking that while I was watching the movie that um, for like that exact thing. Right. Because that would be played in any other movie as like, like you said, like he would get up and do the dance. And that would be like this really emotionally kind of triumphant moment of like. I'm independent. You can't define me. Yeah. Like I'm just going to be comfortable in myself. I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to embrace like who I am. Yeah. This felt more like authentic shame. Right. And it gives a kind of tension to what is going to be the outcome of, you know, the situation with the uncle, because like he doesn't recover himself and like, you know, transcend Lilith's decision about him. And so you get the sense that she wouldn't either if he sides with the uncle. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, like she's not going to be able to be like, well, then I'm not going to do this wedding and I'm going to take this girl out of this situation because all of you have failed me and I will not fail myself. Like, that's probably not what would happen. She would just be like, of course, no one believed me. No one did the right thing. What did I expect? Right. Yeah. That's, I think that's the right story choice on multiple levels. Yeah. It's such a heartbreaking moment because the whole time yeah. you're sitting there and you're watching and you're like, is he going to do it? Is he, you know, and you're just like waiting for it and then it never happens. Um, yeah. And it's like, it's really heartbreaking. One of many heartbreaking things that happens in this movie. And also like the, the other cousin is like an idiot. She's oh, like, yeah. You come dance with me. And he's like, that is not masculine. I cannot do that. Like, you. I think it's more than just about masculinity for him. Like, he definitely feels, I think, pulled between his Indian culture and his, like, adopted Australian culture. Mm-hmm. Um and because, like, he's wearing a very traditional Western suit while almost everyone else at the wedding is wearing, like, more traditional Indian clothes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he talks about how clubbing in Sydney isn't the same as, like, Indian-style dancing that Varun and the the other cousin have prepared. So I think it's it's not just about, like, masculinity directly, right? It's about him not being comfortable with his family's culture not being comfortable with those dances he's like tried so hard to assimilate as an Mm. australian that he's he's like ashamed by his indian culture or at one point was so ashamed by it that he's like shut that part of himself away and he like can't connect to it anymore and he just he feels like he doesn't know how to do that style of dancing adequately and so he you know he lets it interfere with his ability to make out with his cousin's cousin or whatever you know (laughs) (laughs) i think you're totally right i think i had a misreading on that that's uh that's a really good read yeah and that oh and that's like the thing about this movie is right like even the least well-developed 
like most sidelined side story has so yeah. much depth if you really want to like dig into it. Yeah, yeah. Those two are there to be like sexy, right? Like it's a yeah. little bit of yeah, it's a little bit of spice in there to like keep you excited and interested. If you're like younger and being like, I don't know, these old people worrying about their kids, who cares? They're like, these two <laughs> well, it's hot like, people. It's like, it's a little bit sexy and a little bit funny and it's just way more lighthearted yeah. than most of what else mm-hmm. is going on in the movie. So it like, it, it like keeps it bouncy a little. Um, okay. But Doobie and Alice. Yeah. I mean, Doobie's the other thing balancing all of this. I feel like he's the comedy in the movie. Mm-hmm. He is so delightful to me. I think I texted you after, you know, we were setting up what when we were going to do this. And um, and I was like, the movie feels very Shakespearean to me. And it was mostly up to Doobie for that. He feels like the kind of comedy relief character that Shakespeare would have. He's like outside of it all and, and commenting on it all. But he has his own story as well. He's... It's, he's not always a bridesmaid, but never the bride. He's always the wedding planner, but never having the wedding, right? That's yeah. his thing. I love him. I think he's great. I don't know how you felt about him. I just, I love everything about him. <laughs> he's really funny. Um, I love what he brings to the story. Th- yeah, there's something about having that, like, just like a breath of fresh air almost where it's like you get so wrapped up in the drama of this one family. It can be easy to forget that like there's other stuff existing outside of it. And so the Doobie and Alice storyline, I think really accomplishes that. Yeah. I I really like when we go to his house too. And, mm-hmm. um, and that's not funny. And he lives with his mother and he lives like at the top of the city in a very tiny apartment, despite like all the money that's flowing in his business. He feels like he has like a lot of hustle and like he's doing the thing that you're supposed to, that you're like always told about bootstrapping and that kind of thing. If you're a poor person, if you just get out there and work hard and make things happen for yourself, it'll all get better. And he's like working so hard that Mm -hmm. he has nothing. Right? He, all right. he has is this business. Yeah, that's like all all he has, yeah, is his business. And like, yeah, it's he's in a weird middle ground, right? Because he's like better off than the other lower class people. And he's their boss. And like they have a mildly or like their relationship goes back and forth between like friendly and antagonistic because it kind of has to because he's their boss. Um <laughs> And also, he's just like, you know... A tyrant. A tyrant, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But also, you know, like, the family would never consider him an equal. Or, like, engage with him on that way. So he's, like, in a very isolated, kind of, like, lonely place. I don't know. What did you think about his uh, romance with Alice? It's, like... It's weird. It feels (laughs) kind of superficial and, like... Like, he doesn't really know her. I don't feel like he knows her well enough to for this to be like, they get married and it's going to be great. Yeah. I, I don't feel like, like it's going to be great. <laughs> she doesn't really know him that well either, I guess. She, yeah. like, she spends a lot of time observing him. Mm-hmm. And he spends a lot of time not noticing her until she, like, makes it happen. So I do like that. I like that she is the protagonist in that relationship. Like, she's the person (laughs) making decisions and driving things forward. And I guess I can see why she would be intrigued by him and, like, kind of superficially attracted to him. But that relationship doesn't really, like, get the development that I think it needs for them to get married at the end. Mm-mm, no, no. It's like that story has the most, like, quote unquote, romance, you know, like, of a romantic comedy. It has the most romantic gestures in it and stuff. Um, yeah. And the most, like, yeah. will they, won't they, like, yeah. and, like, pining, the. Pining, right. All of that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> There's, like, very little yeah. pining anywhere else in this movie. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's really right. It's I think that's why it feels Shakespearean to me, right? It feels like melodramatic and elevated whenever 
it's him watching her through a window or like she's having these like elaborate fantasies about like, could I wear this dress or this jewelry? And then he like makes those things a reality for her. Right. Mm -hmm. And you don't know like to what degree is he doing that because he's like very lonely or is it like about her? Or his mom was like yelling at him to get married and start (laughs) making him babies. Yeah. Which is like, part of me is like, I know that that is like a a real thing that a lot of people experience, like pressure from their parents to get married and have kids and all of that. But also it makes me question his motivations a little bit Mm because I feel like the movie is kind of set up for us to think that like he decides to go for it with Alice, like because his mom was bothering him. And like that feels weird. You don't feel good about their future, for sh- or I didn't, for sure. It's not, I shouldn't, I'm not surprised at all that he is, like, immature and making bad choices because it feels like all of his energy in life has gone into hustling, right? And mm-hmm. not, he has no people skills, he has no romantic experience. He's, like, really good at upselling his customers and making shit happen, and that's about it. He's, like, not good at, like, oh, I should be emotionally vulnerable and like real and like you know this giant display of flowers means a lot less than like a six-hour conversation throughout the entire middle of the night where we actually get to know each other and things like that yeah but it's sweet like it feels very nice yeah i think you really hit the nail on the head where it's like doobie's a really funny hilarious character but i don't really get the impression that he is ready for a relationship with anybody like, uh-uh. it's it's yeah. not even just about him and Alice, right? It's about, like, does he know how to be with another human like that? Yeah, I don't think so. But, like, I want him to be. I've, I Like, I root for him. Yeah. He's sweet. <laughs> There's a sweetness there to him. He's always eating those flowers. I love that. Mm-hmm. Um, he's, like, eating these marigold flowers. And I feel like that is him, like, that's how he's, like, hungry for romance, for love, and for, like, the experience of that. He's like starved for it because he's really like not had it. I don't feel like it's about her. Like she's a very beautiful woman. She notices him and like, and awakens something in him, but it's, I don't feel like it's about her. It's about his like need to become a more balanced person and experience these things. Yeah. Poor Doopy. Poor Alice really. Yeah. One of the things that I that really jumped out to me when I first watched the movie, um, speaking of Doobie, was like when he and Lalit are talking and Lalit's complaining about the fact that one of the tents is white. Um, and he's like, what do you think this is? Like a funeral? Like make it colorful. Mm. Um, and just how much I think that made me realize that it's like, oh, a lot of the things that I took for granted as being like obvious or, or, like, natural were, like, not universal. I mean, obviously, I, I knew that on some level, but just, like, small little concrete things like, oh, the fact that, like, white is considered a wedding color for me, like, that's not universal. Um, mm-hmm. This was, like, one of the first, like, really clear demonstrations of that that I remember. I also just want to point out briefly that, like, there's a lot of colorism in this movie which Mm. reflects a lot of colorism in real life where like alice and doobie are much darker skinned Mm -hmm. than the core family who's like pretty fair um and especially the bride the actress who plays the bride um is like very Mm. fair skinned has like super light colored eyes and that's a big thing in indian society and culture is like the pressure to you know, like, use bleaching creams and, and all kinds of stuff that's, like, really, obviously, like, not good. And the movie itself doesn't do a lot to call that out or question it. It just kind of, like, reinforces it. Yeah. No, I agree with you. So this is the part of the episode where we usually talk about, um, or the person who chose the the thing talks about how they feel about it now um, versus how they felt about it when they first saw it and, like, how it's impacted them. And it's interesting because, like, this movie is definitely one that had a big impact on me and, like, how I saw film when I first saw it. 
Um, and it's, it's something that I have definitely, you know, like kept on my list of favorite movies, but it's not one that I think about super often or one that I have revisited at all. I mean, when I first watched it, I think I watched it a few times over the period of about a year, but I haven't really revisited it since then. I feel like my perception of this movie hasn't really changed from when I first saw it, but that's not a bad thing. Like, I thought it was really good then, and I still think it's really good now. Um, <laughs> that doesn't always happen, though. Yeah. So I think it's to the movie's credit. I realize that I think this movie has a lot in common with what I consider to be my actual favorite movie, the me and you and everyone we know that we talked about on the show, in the sense that mm -hmm. they're like, they're both like really big ensemble stories with huge casts, lots of like small storylines, um, mm. some of which are lighter, some of which are more intense. Um, movies where like not a whole lot happens, but also a lot happens. Like it's hard to write a concise summary. You either have to like write a full page or just say like a <laughs> bunch of people hanging out, you know? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't really thought about that before. So that was an interesting part of kind of revisiting the movie now at this point after having recorded that episode. Um, and you're actually the first person that I've recommended this to and shared it with. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, so I guess maybe part of me kind of knew that like just the format of this movie is kind of like weird. The pacing's a little bit not a normal movie. And so it, it hasn't been something that I've been, like, in a rush to, to share with a lot of people. It's also, like, kind of outside the cultural experience, too, right? It's mm -hmm. like, watch this movie about an Indian wedding. It would be like, <laughs> okay. That can be a little bit of a tough pitch, you know? Um, yeah. And it's also really interesting because it is, I think, half in Hindi and half in English. Yeah. Um, like, as you're watching it, I feel like, or at least my, the way my brain works, like, I barely notice them switching out in Hindi and English. Like, it's hard for me to remember which parts of the movie are in which language. But I think that does make it also a little bit harder to recommend to people, because it's like... Right. You know, if a movie is, like, completely in a foreign language, you kind of, like, go into it with the expectation that you're going to be doing a lot of reading and this is kind of like a weird intermediate level. Yeah. Or you could get a dub, but yeah. <laughs> there is no dub with this. Because, yeah. Yeah. They're constantly hopping back and forth. And I couldn't tell if like, I just assume that's how it is. Like there, mm -hmm. there just is a lot of English spoken and that's just how it is. I guess. Like I didn't assume that that was being done as like every once in a while Hindi happens to be like, hey, actually all of this is in Hindi and like we're doing the English bits to keep you coming along because this wasn't like made for Hollywood. You know what I mean? So like, yeah, it, it just felt like that's how it is. Yeah, it definitely felt very authentic, you know, a culture, a post-colonial culture. Right. Um, that like really was genuinely linguistically blended in that way okay well that's everything we have to say for today join us next episode um, we're going to be discussing the non-fiction book tiny beautiful things um it is a collection Easy to summarize yeah collection <laughs> of advice articles um but in the most literary way that that could possibly be accomplished <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, a great book. I really think of this as like our first truly joint episode that we've done since Buffy. Um, mm. Because even though I did introduce the book to you, I did it without the intention of necessarily podcasting about it. And I, and I feel like it has come to mean as much, if not more, to you than it means to me. Oh, yeah. I love this book. Like, I've reread it many times and recommend it, almost pushed it on people that we know. And Yeah, uh, you made our, you yeah. were the one that suggested our book club read it. So, yeah, I <laughs> so, love this book. 
So you, yeah, you have spent as much time pressuring people to read this book as I have, <laughs> um, which is saying yeah. something. Uh, so I'm very excited for this discussion. I think yeah, it's going to be too. a good good episode. It, this one will probably head more into the like measures of truth episode length. I'm guessing. Right. We'll see what happens. Oh, I guess we should say the book is by Cheryl Strayed, um, who is most famous. I think probably for the the book Wilds, um, there was a memoir that got made into a, a major motion picture starring Reese Witherspoon. Um, so yeah, uh, don't forget to rate and review our show on Apple Podcasts if you have something nice to say. Uh, I'm Anya, and you can follow me on Twitter at Strangely Literal. That's Strangely, then L I T E R L. I'm Alan, and you can follow the show on Twitter at HG Storycast. Uh, and visit our website at hgstorycast.com. If you'd like to leave us feedback, you can visit hgstorycast.com slash contact or send an email to contact at hallowedgroundmedia.com. Storycast is a Hallowed Ground Media production and is produced under a Creative Commons non-commercial share alike license.